if we were all aware of our own sort of needs physically, emotionally, which is part of this like emotional intelligence piece, we recognized similar needs and feelings in other people. And then we could have relatability, connection, empathy, that would be the social intelligence piece. Then one, I think we'd all get along better and be a lot more caring, compassionate people. But two, for example, learning about history, then you could see like, oh, I could see how that went wrong. I could see how that sort of conflict happened between people because they couldn't acknowledge that somebody else's worldview or perspective was fundamentally different from theirs. And they saw that as a problem that you didn't see it the same way. Welcome to Till Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about over the past year is the importance of SEL, or social and emotional learning, in classrooms, as well as a recent increase in parental and political pushback that is putting the future of SELs in schools at risk. I wanted to get into a deep conversation about SEL for this show, and so I reached out to Dr. Joseph Lee, a psychiatrist with a special interest in social and emotional learning and helping people achieve what he calls optimal mental healthiness. We had exactly the conversation I was hoping for as we got into so many important topics, including the state of children and young adults' mental health today, demystifying what SEL or social-emotional learning actually is, how it's best introduced in schools, the limitations in the current educational model for social-emotional learning curriculums, what the pushback against SEL is really about, and what's at stake if our children aren't provided with social and emotional learning opportunities. I think this is such an important and timely conversation. I hope you enjoy it and that you help me amplify this episode by sharing it in your communities and with others who would benefit from the listen. And a little bit more about my guest, Joe is a psychiatrist in private practice in Redondo Beach, California. He's also an educator in social and emotional learning and provides individual and group supervision to licensed therapists looking to add mental healthiness and SEL principles to their own practices. He has a medical doctorate from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine. Thanks so much. And here is my conversation with Dr. Joseph Lee about social and emotional learning. Hey, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am really looking forward to this conversation and so happy we are able to squeeze it into the summer season because I think it's a really important topic. It's very current. A lot to get into. But before we do that, I always ask my guests to introduce themselves in their own way. And also as part of that, I love this idea of learning more about your personal why. What got you into doing this work and what you love about doing it so much? My broad sort of professional background is that I am a psychiatrist, but my actual day-to-day clinical practice, which is not the case for most psychiatrists, is that day-to-day practice is as a therapist. So I kind of do both, but I am a full-time therapist. I have a full-time private practice. I've been doing that now, including, including my residency for over 20 years. So professionally, that's sort of my background. And then... Um, After sort of my formal training, starting my psychotherapy practice a few years early on is when I became a parent. 
which is an interesting sort of transformative life process, right? <laughs> and then I think as you raise kids, then sometimes the things that you might have learned, I don't know, more academically about child development, you know, what helps people thrive? What is it really to be like mentally healthy? They all kind of feel like super relevant because now you got your own kid and you kind of want to do right by them. And so I would say that that was actually a different learning process outside of my formal sort of education as a psychiatrist, where I think a big shift, you know, for me, maybe especially coming from psychiatry, which is in a medical model, which is sort of like, how do you help when things go wrong, right? Versus, I think, becoming a parent, you want things to go well, right? You're thinking more about well-being and thriving. And, you know, maybe surprisingly, not so surprisingly, that overlap of learning something from a medical model doesn't really cover a lot of what it is to be healthy, emotionally, psychologically, mentally healthy. So I've been talking about all that, uh, learning about it, speaking about that ever since I became a parent. I kind of talk about all that under a larger banner of what I call mental healthiness. And, um, and that's a lot more along the lines of, you know, again, what does it take for a person to be thriving and healthy as opposed to maybe my sort of professional background, which starts with, you know, how to be not sick. And they're not really the same thing. So somewhere in there, that's definitely the why, you know, becoming a parent and wanting my kids. Now I got two kids, wanting my kids to thrive, be healthy, and whatever we as parents, whatever educational experiences, school environments, learning environments that we kind of introduce them to, how all those things we think would be most optimal for them to be thriving kids. I love this phrase of mental healthiness, too. It makes so much sense. And as you say that, you know, I'm watching a Ken Burns documentary on the state of adolescent mental health right now. We know the Surgeon General report that came out in the, I think, earlier in 2022 talked about what a crisis we're really in right now. So before we even move on to social emotional learning, I'm just wondering, like, what are you seeing in your practice and in your work in terms of the state of children and young adult mental health today? Well, I think even the reason why I think I use that phrase mental healthiness is to distinguish it from a more common phrase, mental health, which for the most part, when people talk about mental health and they use that phrase, they are talking about mental illness or some other process of emotional suffering, right? So mental health as a term is really kind of pretty euphemistic to really talk about something more serious and, and negative, you know, which is mental suffering, right? Uh, so mental healthiness as a term is really to try and emphasize that we are talking about actual well-being, right? But along the lines, okay, so what are we seeing in the context of right now at this moment in time with young people, let's say? I will say the good thing is, and the optimistic thing, and the encouraging thing is, I would say from my generation and younger, there definitely is a pretty societal transformational openness to the idea that our mental well-being is crucial, it's valid, and it's a well-integrated part of our health. And so the idea of spending energy and resources on your mental health, I think, has become a much more normal idea. And so I think in that sense, it's good. Another way to say that is, you know, my generation and older, I think, really struggles with the idea of investing in our mental health and our well-being, right? 
So in that sense, I think, you know, it's definitely a good thing that I think the ability to have conversations, uh, the ability to address and acknowledge mental health challenges is a lot easier conversation to have. So in that sense, having the dialogue and then acknowledging that this is worth addressing, trying to do something about it, trying to do better is definitely a, a dialogue that's happening. So that's the good news. The challenge is that, you know, I do think that school pressures, achievement-oriented sort of educational goals, that has really kind of been the norm. The degree of difficulty of, in, of getting into college and what it takes these days and how early people start thinking about that. And that's just to get to college. That's not even, you know, beyond that with higher education. So I think the sort of academic pressures have definitely built up over time. I think the social pressures that have always existed, I think, are there and are still there. The way that kids interact and just, and sort of put themselves out there with social media is different than I think, you know, when I grew up, you know, middle school was pretty difficult already, but to kind of already have like this permanent record of yourself online and those kind of pressures, that's a new challenge. I think the way in which information comes to us and adults, we, we're, we're dealing with this right now too, which is the information that comes to us through the internet or online. We have to negotiate a lot more and practice and exercise judgment about like what's reliable, unreliable, truthful, not truthful. And I think young people have to develop this new skill of discernment that that's also pretty stressful, you know. And then on top of that, the last two and a half years of living through a pandemic, it's, it's affected everybody, obviously. Uh, nobody on this planet has not been affected by it. But I think people who are school-aged and younger and teen and transitioning in their own sort of life developmental stage that's been a unique challenge, you know, because of the instability, unpredictability and irregularities of what kids have gone through in the last couple of years, you know, so it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. And it's worth acknowledging that it's generationally like an additional sort of thing that this group of kids is dealing with and has dealt with that prior generations just can't relate to. I agree with that. It's something, you know, I talked with Dr. John Duffy on the show about this, too, that I think so many of us as adults were like, well, when I was your age, and you know, we think that we can really relate what our kids might be going through in middle school and high school with our own youth. And we really can't like it's a different level, different, different world. So I would love to pivot then to to what we're talking about today, which I think is more along the lines of promoting mental healthiness. And that's to talk about social emotional learning. SEL is something that, you know, as the parent of a differently wired kid, I learned about it through that context, right? That this is something that's important for kids who may struggle reading social cues or, you know, who may have some lagging skills and social emotional literacy, that that's really important for them. But now I know that it's really something that every human, every kid certainly needs access to. So I would love to just start by understanding how would you define SEL, social emotional learning? What actually is it? So I think social emotional learning as a movement is actually a response to, I think, a pretty pervasive but false idea that kind of culturally says, and, and this is the false idea, the false idea 
is that as human beings, the defining characteristic of who we are and what makes us special is our ability to think and be logical and rational. And even though that's true, like if you compared human beings, homo sapiens to like apes and dolphins and other species with big brains, like we are like smarter than. But I think it's turned into this sort of even the way that we do education, you know, it's about knowledge and, and facts and even, you know, conversations about critical thinking and how important that is. I think somewhere along the way, by inadvertently sort of putting being rational and logical on a pedestal, it has inadvertently really trivialized the value of our feelings and our emotions. And I think that because of that, I think generationally, you, you talk about sort of our generation or older generations not being able to really relate to what younger kids are going through. I think one of the hallmark features of people my age and above is that we did live through a time where emotions and feelings were very much trivialized as being less than, and that it was, you know, better to be logical or rational about decision-making or that if you were emotional that, you know, oh, we can't talk until you calm down or to, you know, suck it up, you know, like these are like pretty common things told to us as kids. And now we're all adults with that sort of messaging ingrained pretty deeply in us. So, that's the context in which I think social emotional learning as a sort of like formalized philosophy of education developed as a response to and as a correction to that. What it is then ultimately, though, is the idea that says that our emotional and our social life as human beings is a core aspect of being a human being. And in certain ways, if we grow up in healthy environments with validating caregivers, then we can be in tune with that natural hardwiring that allows us to be healthy emotional beings and healthy social beings. But without that validation, without that support, without having all of our needs met, then a lot of negative things can happen regarding our internal emotional life and our, and our ability to connect with people in a meaningful level socially. So I think social emotional learning is just something that gives space to that nurturing of our emotional well-being, our emotional intelligence, our emotional skill set. And then that emotional skill set and experience then also translates into being able to connect with people more easily, more readily, more deeply on a social level. I think, you know, the term social intelligence was made popular by Daniel Goleman, who then also went on to kind of write a different book, Social Intelligence. And he kind of, you know, connects them as basically being, you know, social intelligence is sort of a different particular manifestation of our emotional intelligence. And so these are very interrelated ideas. And I think some of that research that kind of maybe happened around that time with Daniel Goleman and other people who've done the emotions research or, or sociology that's kind of like folded in with maybe psychology research has kind of become the research and science basis of validating social emotional learning as an idea, as a teachable concept that has things that you can then translate into like a curriculum. So that's kind of like the big picture of, you know, what is social emotional learning, but also why, like in a historical sort of why now context, why is it important? Why is it irreplaceably important? And why does it belong in education? We'll be right back after this quick break. 
This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'd love to look at or learn more about how it is something that's taught in schools. You know, you said it's a teachable concept and there are curriculum. And I know my understanding is there are different types of SEL curriculum, but is it something that's weaved into the fabric of traditional educational models, generally speaking, or does it have to be introduced through very specific curriculum? I think in a most idealistic sense, it can and ought to be integrated, I think there's a different conversation about how our educational structure is built now, which is very subject-oriented and achievement-oriented, which structurally actually makes it very hard to do anything that's particularly integrated, actually. Anything, you know, it's hard to integrate math and 
history or, or writing and history or science together. So I think our subject-oriented way of teaching is actually not particularly well set up for the kind of integrated learning. So that being said, I do think the introduction of social-emotional learning has been more like, here's a, an additional subject but that, I think, is not necessarily because it's the best way or the only way to do that. But it's probably the easiest entry point to try to add something that is immensely valuable into, I think, a more formal sort of educational curriculum. I say that because in a more ideal sense, because, again, we are social-emotional beings at our core, it should be relevant to all learning. But in terms of how it's actually integrated, I think it's, it's a challenge. I think that, you know, something you said earlier about we even as parents and validating our kids' emotions and getting more curious about the emotional social lives of our kids, that's something we may be doing at home. And what you're saying or what I hear you saying is that ideally that's something educators would be bringing to their classrooms as well. So they would be kind of teaching through that lens, but that the structure of school right now doesn't really allow for that level. It's something a teacher would have to go kind of above and beyond and really prioritize making that part of the classroom culture. Right. And I think sort of in that measurement sort of style of educational assessment, we lean heavily into the R's, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Whereas the easiest, I think, segue to introduce social emotional concepts would be through what I guess people would call social studies, you know, history, psychology, sociology, but that's not one of the R's, right? And that's harder to measure. And unfortunately, as is again talking talking about topical things, you know, teaching history has become a controversial thing. So even the idea of what is taught in the context of social studies is not as standardized or straightforward as you know, reading proficiency, writing proficiency, math proficiency, for example. So even more so, it's harder to like find the the segue of the entry point to talk about the value and the impact and, and the relevancy of how human beings are in the world now and historically, how we interact, the impact that those interactions have when we have good interactions with each other, the consequences of harm. You know, when human beings both now and historically have had conflict or have not been thoughtful of other people's perspective and viewpoints, you can find that thread that that very well says that, you know, if we were all aware of our own sort of needs physically, emotionally, which is part of this like emotional intelligence piece, we recognized similar needs and feelings in other people. And then we could have relatability, connection, empathy, that would be the social intelligence piece. Then one, I think we'd all get along better and be a lot more caring, compassionate people. But two, for example, learning about history, then you could see like, oh, I could see how that went wrong. I could see how that sort of conflict happened between people because they couldn't acknowledge that somebody else's worldview or perspective was fundamentally different from theirs. And they saw that as a problem that you didn't see it the same way, as opposed to, I think, a natural process of learning is that we tend to become more competent people. You know, this is a general sort of thought about how we learn naturally, biologically, neurologically. 
we learn by learning more, right? You know, we all tend to come into the world with relatively simple ideas and schema that are pretty black and white. And as we are exposed to more experiences, as we're guided by other people who have more experience or experts point us in the right direction, we gain more knowledge and perspective, and then we develop more nuance and competency and expertise because we actually can see more from more perspectives. And that's a healthy way of learning. That's a natural way of learning. And so, you know, the, the perspective shifting, the recognizing that what we feel in ourselves is valid, recognizing that we can also see it in other people, that's social emotional learning. And like I said, you could very much weave that into different ways in which we teach kids relevant things, but the entry point in the way that our subject-based, testing-based, achievement-based educational system is constructed makes it seem like social-emotional learning is like yet another subject we got to cram in there. Okay, so you just shared so much. My mind is racing. I feel like I have this different level of understanding And so I'm just going to connect the dots for myself, and maybe that will help listeners if they're feeling the way I am too. But what I'm hearing you say, or what's making sense to me, is that subjects in which there's any level of interpretation of something. So like math, science, it's like fact-based, this is what we do. But any other subject, literature, history, anything we're doing where we're trying to make sense of and make connections and have deeper understandings, but interpretations can be personal There's no definitive one way to look at something, or at least uh, certainly with history, there are definitive facts about things that happen. But, you know, interpreting and how do we make meaning from those things, that that's really what we're talking about with social emotional learning. And so what I'm wondering is you did share a lot of things like having conversations about certain conflicts and trying to understand what we can learn from that as a society. Like, what are some other ways that SEL can be weaved into the school if it's not a specific SEL curriculum, but like how else does it show up? Is it classroom discussions? Is it, I'm just trying to really understand what it would look like inside of a, of a school, what parents might be, if they get a note, we're doing SEL in school, what might that mean? I know that some of the programs that have been more sort of like readily integrated to certain schools are like mindfulness based practices, right? And mindfulness is this idea and practice where if we give ourselves enough time and space and we kind of like focus inward, we can develop a skill where we can notice more about what our thoughts, what our feelings are. And there's value in itself of being a more mindful person because I think one, you become less reactive you can sort of be a little bit more conscientious, thoughtful, deliberate about making judgments, which then affects your decision making. There is a calming, emotionally regulating sort of experience that can come with the practice of mindfulness meditation that also has larger impact. If you practice it regularly, you can become generally more emotionally regulated. I think that That's something I know that has been introduced and then sort of studied as something that if it's introduced, what is the impact that it has? I know that some of the data says that from a behavioral standpoint, kids who historically might have, I don't know, gotten in trouble or something like that in a behavioral sense 
found benefit from being able to do that. I think it does because I think it allows people to be more conscientious about their thoughts and less impulsive. And I think it improves class discussion. It probably deepens the ability to think more critically, which, you know, in a group environment, I think we learn from each other in different ways that we would learn from reading something on our own. So deeper classroom discussions, hearing other people's thought processes, I think oftentimes is what gets us to think differently. Like, for example, you know, oftentimes these podcast formats is exactly what causes me to think about new things or vice versa, you know, hopefully your audience or will hear our dialogue, our conversation today, and it'll sort of stimulate their thinking about things that they had never considered because not because our conversation will be thorough, but because it's just stimulating the conversation in itself. So I think, you know, mindfulness has been a good, I think, starting point because it introduces like a particular teachable skill that has benefits, you know, to the person who's practicing it. But I think it also then translates into like these richer, richer class discussions and makes people appreciate their own ability to kind of think and reflect and understand and feel something as well. It's so interesting. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a big backlash against mindfulness. There were a lot of articles about kids who would typically be put in timeout, like younger kids in school who who may be neurodivergent, may be getting emotionally dysregulated, instead of being punished or sent to do some mindfulness or some other kind of meditation. And there was a big pushback against that. And I'm like, how can this be a bad thing? It's shown to really benefit kids nervous systems and help them with the emotional regulation. So as you're sharing that, I'm thinking about that. And I'm now want to just tie it to what we've seen, I think, in the US and in recent months is a real backlash against SEL from so many lenses and a pushback that has been really hard to watch from the sidelines as a parent who, again, this has been on my radar for years, and I understand the importance for neurodivergent kids. But it is important for everybody. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, what's at stake if we don't allow teachers to have the freedom and flexibility to have these more meaningful conversations about things that certain members of the population may find to be controversial, CRT, talking about gender studies, sexual orientation, you know, having these conversations that are important for kids to engage in and to think critically about. I'd love to just talk with you a little bit about that, that pushback. You know, at at the heart of the argument against teaching things like, let's say, CRT or expanding the scope of talking about even more broadly how different people are different, the pushback oftentimes is like, but how is this relevant to my kid? And I think that that's sort of one of the most important aspects of thinking about learning in the context of being socially aware because that's part of the skill set of learning how to see things from a more attuned perspective, but also seeing it from somebody else's perspective. And I think, you know, the reason why we teach history in general, let's say, is because, you know, we didn't live at those times. And oftentimes we didn't live there, you know, it's a different country or a different part of the world. And we do these exercises historically, you know, about what would it have been like if you grew up in X amount of time? What would it have been like if you were 
in that position? What would you have done? And those are great exercises because I think it creates not just deep thinking, but it creates this sort of like broadening of perspective. And I think that if you take away the ability to do anything that seemingly says, well, that's not relevant to my kid, then indirectly what you're saying is, you know, the only perspective that my kid will ever learn is the one that's only relevant to them. And I think that's really problematic. I think that that ultimately translates into, one, that person having a very small worldview. And I think, you know, the larger sort of vulnerability, I think, when we limit the scope of what we expose ourselves to, even, you know, even as adults, in terms of what we learn and are still learning, the cost of limiting our perspectives or being, you know, too certain about our understanding of things is that if the world ever presents us anything that we've have not been open to, and that is potentially harmful to us, then we'll get blindsided. We'll be unprepared. We wouldn't have thought about, you know, the realities that things can exist outside of our belief systems. I think this is why the pandemic, you know, has been such a challenge, you know, in the United States, more so than other sort of first world countries that responded much more differently, because like one of the things that, you know, we didn't really grow up with here is we don't have a very strong, like, public health experience. You know, sure, our kids have gotten vaccinated, but that's just more like a sort of like a thing that we do, you know. But we don't have this, like, lived experience in the United States of having done something where our choices affect the well-being of, like, our whole community. Whereas other countries, you know, public health is just something that's maybe a little bit more integrated. So, public testing, or if everyone was supposed to like self quarantine, and the context was given as like, well, you need to do this, because we need to stop the spread of this virus, that could affect everyone, that sort of more collective reasoning, that collective mindset of like, we're all in this together was just an easier thing to digest, I think, in other countries. And so when you saw like South Korea, or Taiwan respond very early, and very well, And you compare that to kind of the resistance and the doubt and the skepticism and the pushback that we saw here in the United States. I think that's like a real world example of like what happens if you have and hold on to a mindset that says, you know, the only things that I care about are the things that relate to me or the only things that matter are the ones that I can relate to and everything outside of that. I don't see why it's important. So I think introducing as a normal exercise as early as possible, the idea that we should learn about people with different lived experiences, people with different perspectives that come from different cultures or backgrounds is really important because that is the world we live in. That is how we exist. You know, we do live surrounded by people that are different than us. The argument, I think, oftentimes in education is, well, we're trying to help the most kids as possible. But what ends up happening with that kind of mentality is that kids who are in some sort of minority, whether that's a racial minority or, let's say, a neurodivergent minority, because they don't belong to that majority, their needs really get neglected. But oftentimes, unfortunately, I think that that's the argument that's made, which is like, this doesn't apply to either my kid or most kids. 
And I think that that's unfortunately, you know, how the sort of like the reasoning behind why we shouldn't or we should we shouldn't talk about these things or we shouldn't teach these things. That that's the argument that's often made. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm just wondering, is SEL something that is explicitly taught in other countries. I have an international audience. So I'm just wondering, is this applicable to people living in other countries? Is it more ingrained, do you think, in the classrooms and the societal structures? Is this a really uniquely American challenge that we're facing? I think some of the pushback that we're experiencing right now is definitely uniquely American. There are certain things that You know, one of the human blind spots we have towards knowing things is that we don't know what we don't know, right? Everyone has large areas of ignorance because it's impossible to know everything. And and our knowledge so often is experience-based or based on, you know, the resources and the people that we're exposed to. So, So everyone has giant aspects of their understanding of things where, where they have blind spots and that's fine, except another particular blind spot is we don't know what we don't know, right? So I think one of the things that as Asian American that I find beneficial is my lived experience of someone who's born in the United States, has lived here my whole life, is definitely someone who has a very American experience. But my p- parents are also immigrants, and they've lived here, obviously, just as long as I've been alive. But their sort of culture in which they grew up as children, as teenagers, as young adults is distinctly Asian. And so I'd say my experience is is the one, though, that's kind of exposed to both. Right. And so one of the unique things, I think, of having, let's say, an Asian-American perspective is that you can kind of see America 
from a different perspective than if you were a monocultural American, right? I'm a bicultural American. And one of the things that is uniquely American, more so than other cultures, is the degree of individualism that we've normalized here, how we think it's very normal to emphasize autonomy and personal independence and, you know, the freedom of I get to make choices for myself, which has merit, but but I think the idea of how individualistic we are in America is even more so than even other, like, let's say, Western European countries where, like, the idea of individualism came from, right? So I think that there is this uniquely American aspect to the degree to which even more so the if it's not relevant to me, I don't see why it's relevant. I, I think that's a weird idea to, to, to people in other countries, you know, if stated that way. So I think that that part's challenging. Circle back to earlier in our conversation, though, I think that when I mentioned, I said, you know, the whole idea of social emotional learning, SEL, is a response to something that is, I think, generationally, like in this moment in time. And I mentioned that the encouraging thing is, you know, regardless if it's taught in schools or not, I do think that kids and young adults now, just broadly, culturally, are more socially, emotionally aware in a much more natural, intuitive way. I think it actually is really our generation and older that really kind of needs to like learn this first in a more academic, intellectual sense and be convinced that it's relevant. I think the challenge is that it is people of our generation and older that are the teachers and the administrators and the policymakers and the law and the people who write the laws and do all these things, right? So that it's why it's become relevant is because like this is a generation that needs to be convinced because it's not quite natural to them to believe in this idea that our social intelligence and our emotional intelligence is actually more relevant to our human experience than our like intellectual intelligence, you know, like that's a hard sell to some people, you know, who are of our generation and older. But I bet you if you talk to, you know, people who are millennials or Gen Y or kids, my kids would be like, yeah, like that's not a hard idea at all for them to accept, you know? So in that sense, I can only speak to like, again, my experience here in the United States. But I do think broadly, because we are a much more connected world globally, that probably, you know, there is a generational artifact about how socially, emotionally naive our generation and older are. I don't know that that's actually a rule. I think that's a historical kind of thing that swept up a couple of generations here in the United States where we're just like, it's just a foreign idea to us and we have to like learn it in our adulthoods. Thank you. I appreciate like going deep in these things that I hope my listeners are along for the ride. I find these conversations so fascinating. I could talk about this stuff for hours, but I think we should wrap up there's so many ways we could close this, but is there something that you would want parents to know or to kind of leave this conversation thinking about whether that's something they could be doing to support SEL at home or to be more vocal in their schools? Is there some kind of takeaway you'd like to leave people with? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think to encourage parents that all of our children are already innately social, emotional beings. So, this is not really a sort of like curriculum thing that truly needs to be introduced because it is innate. It's natural. 
it is how they are because we're all human beings and we are innately social emotional beings. So what we're really talking about is almost like the resistance to the idea is the problem. And so I think if you are already a parent who understands the value of your kids' emotional experiences and you recognize that the quality of relationships that they have, starting with you and the other sort of like caregivers in their life, are super important. And when they go into adolescence, that, you know, they will shift and develop meaningful, pure relationships. And those are very important. I think if you're already a parent that kind of sees your children in that way, more than anything, it's just more like supporting them and scaffolding them in that normal developmental process and not trying to be a barrier or hindrance in that process. I think in the larger conversation, we're talking about like the systemic maybe barriers that invalidate those natural sort of tendencies to be emotional, the natural tendencies to be social. So that's the bigger challenge, right? The bigger challenge is the institutional systemic barriers were, like I said, mostly coming from people of my generation and older because their experience doesn't tell them how important this is, aren't willing to transform systems to, to make it more accommodating for ideas of integrating also into our learning school systems, educational systems, the value of social emotional skills. So mostly as an encouragement, I hope, right, that, that we're really just saying like support and don't get in the way, which is a lot different than like, how do I teach my kids something? It's hardwired into us, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in our nature. It's there, right? That's great. Thank you. And before we say goodbye, are there places that you'd like listeners to find you and follow your work and connect on social or where are your spots? So uh, that term mental healthiness, if you Google it anywhere, ideally it leads to me. I got a website, mentalhealthiness.com, professional Facebook page. I got a Twitter, which I probably need to be more active on. However, you know, throughout the course of the year, like on this podcast, different conferences, I do some regular speaking. So I think if you find me on, on social or through my website, you'll also be able to be guided towards this and future talks that I do on topics like these. Well, thank you. Thank you again for everything you shared. I just so enjoyed this deep dive and a little bit of a intellectual conversation, which I always appreciate. And thanks for the work that you do. And I just appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more 
or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unstick-